Today we're beginning a new series in the book of Daniel. So let me pray as we get into this first chapter. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the book of Daniel. I pray that through it we might be challenged and encouraged and emboldened in our commitment to you. Amen. I always find it hard when I see a church that's been converted into a B&B or a cafe or a concert hall. And it's not so much about the building per se, but about what that building represents. This is a place where God's people used to gather, and now there are no people left uh, to gather. And there's a real sense of tragedy in that. And there's a real loss of Christian influence in that community. But it also says a lot about the shift in our culture. But we don't need a converted church or a census to tell us that as Christians, we are now a minority within our community. And we have a deep and long Christian heritage in Australia, but our culture has shifted. And being a minority can be quite confronting. You know, it can confront our commitment to Christ, it can confront our confidence in our faith. And I think there are three ways that we potentially respond. Uh, the first one is we can give up. Uh, the world is right, uh, we are wrong, and so we denounce our commitment to Christ. And that can be a long, slow process of drifting away, or it can be a single you know, moment where we denounce our faith. But either way, it ends up in the same place. Option two is what's called syncretism. And that's where we try to keep the things that we love about being a Christian, but then try to incorporate the values of the world around us into our faith. You know, it's a bit like mashing together two different colours of Play-Doh. We think we're going to end up with, you know, something really cool, but what we end up with is this murky shade of brown. It's not even, you know, the good version of brown. Uh, the option three is to hold the line. You know, it doesn't matter what the world throws at us, whether it is tempting us or threatening us, we are committed to following Christ in all of the events and challenges of life. And that sort of conviction is going to take courage and it's going to take commitment. And I think that's what makes this book of Daniel such a powerful book for our time. Because Daniel understands what it feels like uh, when God is doing what we don't expect him to do. He understands temptation, the temptation to fit in the culture around him. And he understands what it is like to experience pressure uh, as he is tempted to follow his culture and try to avoid the suffering that comes with standing out from the crowd. And so often we'll see in the book of Daniel that there's a genuine threat of not just humiliation, but death. And so as we begin this series, how do we get here? Uh, the short answer is uh, the Babylonians invaded Israel and exiled most of the nation. Uh, but that's only part of the answer. The more accurate answer is in these opening words in the book of Daniel, where it says, And the Lord de delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So right back in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that he would establish a nation through his family line. So the writer of the book of Deuteronomy expresses it like this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. 
So we've gone from being a treasured possession to being exiles in Babylon. And I think it's helpful to take a moment to see just what happened between that wonderful beginning and this tragic end. Uh, numerically, it got off to a slow start. So Abraham had one son, Isaac. Uh, Isaac did a little bit better. He had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Uh, they had a bit of a falling out, but eventually they reconciled. And then Jacob has 12 sons. Uh, one, uh, Benjamin, comes a little bit later. But 10 of those sons conspire to kill their youngest brother, uh, whose name was Joseph, who they perceived to be a bit of an obnoxious prat. He kept having these dreams about how they would bow down and worship him. And they didn't really like that. And they didn't like the fact that Joseph was their father's favourite. And so uh, they were going to murder him, but they ended up selling him into slavery and he ends up in Egypt. Uh, but what they meant for evil, God meant for good. So Joseph works his way up from being a slave to overseeing the food stores of Egypt. And so when there's a famine, God orchestrates for the whole family to come to Egypt and he ends up saving his brothers and the same brothers who had conspired to murder him. So it's a happy ending. Uh, but then uh, a generation passes. Uh, the pharaohs of Egypt forget Joseph and that history and Israel become a slave nation within Egypt. So lots of people, lots of descendants, but no freedom and no land. And God sees their misery and he sends Moses to rescue Israel out of Egypt. And so he speaks to Moses through a burning bush that isn't really burning. And he says this, he says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But this promised land comes with some conditions. If they obey God, they will be blessed and they will enjoy the land. If they disobey God, then they will be punished and they will be judged. And they choose to disobey God. And time and time again, God sends prophets to warn Israel and to say to them, return to me and I will return to you. But they refuse to return. And so politically, the nation ends up splitting into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, are wiped out by the Assyrians and they never really re-establish as a nation. But later on, they become what is known as Samaria. Uh, Judah continues for a little bit longer, but in 598, uh, Babylon invade. And Judah are forced to pay a tax to Babylon. Uh, but then the Babylonians have their own issues, uh, particularly with Egypt. And so Judah try to use the turmoil as a bit of an opportunity to get away with not paying their taxes. And then Nebuchadnezzar returns with his army. He sieges Jerusalem and ends up destroying it in 586 BC. And if you've read the book of Lamentations, it's quite a short book, it's worth reading. But you get a sense of the whole horror of what has happened as Babylon besieged Jerusalem. It's this tragic event. But you also get a sense of why this has happened, uh, that Judah have not been faithful to God, and now God has judged them for their choices. 
And then to make sure Judah don't try and rebel again, uh, the majority of the population are exiled into Babylon, including Daniel and his friends. Uh, so that's the super short version of, you know, sort of the first half of the Bible. Uh, but if you prefer the super, super short version, then here's a visual sort of picture of what happened. And this is taken from the book God's Big Picture. And actually, we've got a few on the bookshelf if you'd like to read it. But the super short version, uh, God created the world, then we've got the fall. Uh, so we've got uh, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the flood, uh, all those sorts of things. And then we have Abraham and the promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They leave Egypt, so we've got the Exodus and the Promised Land. In the Promised Land, we have the king and we've got temples. The kingdom is divided north and south. And then here we are back in Babylon. So all of this provides some context for the book of Daniel, but it also serves as a warning to us. In the words of Winston Churchill, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Yeah, Israel was all very religious. They built an absolutely stunning temple. There were lots of sacrifices to God for sin, but on a national level, they didn't love God and they didn't obey God. And so if God is willing to judge Israel, his chosen people who is set apart from all the other nations of the world, then we need to recognise that he would also, he is also, willing to judge us. And that's always been a confronting message to hear. But I think we need to hear it, and perhaps more and more, because I think more and more we've lost our sense of our fear of God, and more and more we try to work out, well, how can I live the way I want to live and still be confident about where I stand? And that's that syncretic sort of faith that I was talking about at the beginning. And so we justify our sin, or at very least, we appease ourselves Uh, so that we feel that our sin isn't too serious. Uh, So we might try to do that by focusing on the love of God. If God is love and God loves me, then God would never judge me, uh, no matter what I do. Or perhaps we reduce our faith down to simply a belief in God, or perhaps even a belief that Jesus is the Son of God and I come to church, but then we live the rest of our life as if those things are completely separate. So what I do on Sunday and what I believe is completely separate from the way I approach my work or the way I approach my sexual relationships or the way I approach how I behave within my marriage. Or perhaps we try to take the Bible, what the Bible says clearly, and then twist it around to say what we want it to say and what's perhaps more convenient for us. Uh, If that's the way we're thinking, then we're no longer submitting to the Lordship of Christ. And if we think, well, you know, God hasn't done anything bad to me so far, and it's all worked out pretty well, then that's a false sense of security. Because simply because God hasn't done something in the past doesn't mean he won't judge us in the future. And we certainly have seen that in the experience of Israel. Uh, Thankfully, uh, we know that when we do get it wrong, there is the offer of forgiveness, uh, that Jesus has died on the cross. He's already paid the price for our sin. And so when we repent of our sin, when we turn away from it, he promises to forgive us and to restore us. Uh, But with that comes an expectation that we will submit to the Lordship of Christ. So just to be clear, God wants more than simply our moral behaviour. He wants our devotion. So back to Daniel. 
Uh, it's been a pretty bleak journey uh, to get to where we are. And for someone to watching on from the sidelines, you've got to be wondering, you know, where is God in all of this? Has God been defeated by the God of Babylon? You know, as the saying goes, to the victor goes the spoils. But as we read these opening words in the book of Daniel, we don't get that sense of defeat or despair. And we certainly get in other places like Lamentations. But here we get a very clear picture. Uh, The king is gone. The land is gone. The temple is gone. But God is still in control. And I think it's a real challenge for us as we think about difficult events in our own life. You know, it's tempting to ask, you know, where is God in this situation? Or, you know, why did God let this happen to me? Or why has God let this happen to Australia? And often we ask those questions either doubting God and doubting his goodness and power, or perhaps accusing God. But for Daniel, he knows how they got here. The question now is, how do we live here? And the book of Daniel answers that question by retelling these stories of faithfulness and courage from amongst these young leaders of Israel. So back to our passage, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So for this group of young men in exile, actually, life is looking pretty good. You know, all they need to do is not stuff it up. You know, keep your head down, work hard, and life is going to be really comfortable. And I'm sure the first day of the job, everything was starting fantastically well until they got to lunch. And then Daniel had to go and muck it all up. So verse 8, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. It's difficult to know what it was about the food that would defile Daniel and his friends. You know, certainly the Old Testament commands Israel not to eat certain foods. They're considered unclean. And so most of us would be aware that Jewish people don't eat pork. But there's a whole list of foods. So uh, the people weren't to eat horse uh, or lobster uh, or, for that matter, a pelican, uh, which is probably no great loss. Uh, So food lords might be the motivation here, but it actually doesn't explain the whole picture because there's plenty of food that would have come from the king's table that they could have eaten and they certainly could have drunk the wine. Uh, More likely, the real issue isn't about the actual food, but about where the food comes from and what eating that food represents. You know, over and over again in this passage, we read this food comes from the king's table. And so eating this food, would be an expression of servitude and allegiance to the king. Uh, So by refusing to eat, Daniel's really saying, I'll be loyal to the king, I will serve him faithfully, but my devotion and my allegiance is to God. Uh, And this protest puts the official in an awkward position because he's responsible for making sure that these young men are fit and healthy. And so it's not going to reflect very well on the king if these guys are walking around the palace looking pale and gaunt. Uh, And inevitably, uh, the official is the one who is going to get punished. And so Daniel 
offers a solution. Let us eat vegetables and water for 10 days. So he's talking about the least kingly food possible. And then he says, compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Notice Daniel doesn't say, if this doesn't work, then we will eat the king's food. Daniel recognises that standing up for what is right doesn't always work out well. And he's prepared for that. Uh, thankfully, in this particular situation, uh, God is merciful. At the end of the 10 days, they look healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. The point here isn't do the right thing and we'll be blessed. And I think that can be a real temptation that we can actually make obedience all about us. You know, I should be generous to others because then they'll be generous to me. Or I shouldn't get drunk because if I get drunk, then I'll say something stupid or I'll do something stupid and then that will make my life worse. So that's partly true and we should listen to the Bible because it is good for us, but it's only half the truth. Because actually, obedience isn't all about us. Our primary motivation should always be, how am I going to honour God in this situation? And then out of that, if there is any bonus benefit for us, well, that's fantastic. And certainly in Daniel, it works out well. And we can see in this whole situation how God is going to use these young men to put them into a position of power and influence in Babylon. And so verse 20, the chapter concludes, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So even now in exile, God is preparing his chosen people and he's going to work through these young men to display his power and glory. If you're observing Israel uh, in the lead-up up to the book of Daniel, I'd be tending to conclude that Israel really have put their faith in the wrong God and it's ended in their humiliation. Uh, Israel are now in exile. The articles from the temple of God are now in the temple of the Babylonians. You know, Daniel cannot change his circumstances, but right from the start of this book, he wants us to at least understand how they got there. Uh, they're not in exile because the Babylonians are powerful. Uh, they're in exile because Israel have disobeyed God and they've been judged. And so now they need to work out, well, how are they going to honour God in their present situation? And time and time again, they're going to be faced with a choice. They can pledge allegiance to Babylon and receive glory and honour and power, or they can be faithful to God. And really, we face the same choice. You know, Jesus uh, once said, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. It's not always easy to stand up in the world, and often it will come at a cost. And so I hope we take courage from the courage of Daniel. I hope it gives us a sense of perspective. You know, what does it mean to live for Christ in a world that has forgotten the God who created them? so that we might be able to hold the line when the pressure is genuinely on. So let me pray that we will do that. Dear Lord, we do thank you for your grace to us and for the salvation we have through your Son. We thank you for your Spirit uh, that strengthens us and emboldens us uh, to live in the world. And so, Lord, I pray whatever our circumstances, you might give us the courage to stand up for you and to stand firm. Amen.